Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Eliana Adler to talk about Polish Jews who fled to the Soviet Union in 1939 and who subsequently survived the Second World War and the Holocaust in Siberia and Central Asia. Eliana Adler is an associate professor of history and Jewish studies at Pennsylvania State University. She's a historian of the modern Jewish experience in Eastern Europe, and her most recent book, titled Survival on the Margins, Polish Jewish Refugees in the Wartime Soviet Union, is the basis for our conversation today. Survival on the Margins is a phenomenal book which tells us about those Polish Jews who fled to the East when war broke out in September 1939. After the Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty repartitioned Poland between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, in the chaos of war, about 200,000 Jews escaped from the Nazis into the Soviet Union, where they were subsequently deported further east, in many cases to Siberia and other locations in Central Asia. After the war, many returned to Poland, where they discovered the full extent of the Holocaust's destruction. In the war's aftermath, they actually made up a large portion of the total group of Jewish Holocaust survivors. But in the years since, for various reasons, their story has been subsumed into the main Holocaust narratives. I'm so glad that Eliana and I have a chance to discuss the book and the big picture issues it raises about how we understand the Holocaust, what it means to be a survivor, and the paradoxes of history. I hope that you'll check out Eliana's fantastic book, and that you'll also take a moment to subscribe to the Jewish History Matters podcast, which you can download anywhere you listen to podcasts. We have great things coming your way. Hi, Eliana. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, uh, I'm really glad that we are having a chance to talk about your research and about these big issues about how we understand the different stories of the Holocaust that some people might not be as familiar with, you know, especially the history of the refugees we're going to get into. What is this story of these Polish Jews who fled into the Soviet interior in, you know, at, at the, the early stages of World War II? What is going on here and why is it significant? The story basically is that some fairly small but significant proportion, 10%, hard to say exact numbers, of Jews who were in Western Poland in 1939, the part of Poland that was taken by the Germans, fled across the new border into the part of Poland that was taken by the Soviets. So they became refugees in what had been Poland, but quickly became Part of the Soviet Union. Most of these people were deported by the Soviets into forced labor camps and special settlements the following summer in 1940. And then the summer after that, once the war came to the Soviet Union, that is in 1941, they were amnestied. So these Polish citizens, Jews among them, also non-Jews, suddenly were free-ish in the Soviet Union, but they couldn't go back to their homes because their homes were under German occupation. And they spent the rest of the war trying to get by, mostly in Central Asia, 
sometimes in Siberia or in other parts of the unoccupied Soviet Union. And then after the war, mostly in 1946, they go back, they're repatriated to Poland. So they go full circle, um, having had very difficult experiences during the war, only to find out that their disease, starvation, losing family members, all of the real trauma that they faced was sort of nothing compared to what happened to their families and friends whom they left behind. And they confront the Holocaust and its aftermath. As you said, that it's really a small portion of Polish Jews. I think the number that you give is about 200,000 know, Polish Jews who flee uh, into the Soviet Union, which sounds like it is a very large number. But in terms of the overall Polish Jewish population from before the war, uh, which was about 3 million Jews who were living in uh, in pre-war Poland, it's not by any means the majority or approaching a, a particularly large percentage uh, as a whole. So this is a story that as a result, that is in some respects, not as well known because of the numbers, but also to some extent, because it relies and it's connected with the very complicated nature of the opening of World War II. And you kind of need to have a familiarity with the complexity of the changing day-to-day situation in order to understand how it was that these Polish Jews were able to flee from the Nazis in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of your point about the significance, if if we're looking numerically, you're right that at the beginning of the war, it's a relatively small number. But of course, when they come back, they are the majority of Polish Jewish survivors. So when we talk about the survivor community, Polish Jews were the largest Jewish community in Europe, and roughly 70% of the Polish survivors come back from the Soviet Union. So suddenly they're a much more significant just in terms of numbers. But it's interesting that when we talk about survivors or DPs or you know refugees after the war, mostly people aren't thinking about this group. They're thinking about those who came out of camps or came out of the partisans. You're right that it's definitely about their sort of the complexities and the changing borders. And it's just a hard story to tell in a clear way. But it's also more than that, the ways in which it's somewhat suppressed given how significant their numbers were after the war. Yeah, so I definitely want to come back in a few minutes to this question of how we understand the survivors. And you mentioned this really interesting point about how proportionally the the number of survivors who had fled to the Soviet Union is very large compared to the number of survivors who had gone through the camps just because you had obviously a much higher chance of being murdered in the concentration camps and the death camps than in the Soviet Union. I want to emphasize here a point that you bring up here, which is the issue about the way in which the process of Jews fleeing eastward is so intrinsically tied up in the very specific developments that are happening kind of on the ground uh, in the places where they are living. How easy would you say that it was or how difficult was it, you know, for somebody to pick up, you know, from the town in which they were living in Western Poland and flee eastward you know, as the the war is breaking out? You know, Germany is invading from one side. The Soviet Union is invading from the other. It's a very chaotic situation. So what does it look like for people who are making this move to try to escape from really a tremendously difficult situation all around? Obviously, being a refugee is not easy in any case, for anybody at any point in time, what does this look like you know, for somebody who's trying 
you know, to make their way away from the Nazis or really just away from the war zone in general? I mean, it's such a complicated sort of weighing of information and rumors and guesses, because of course, they don't have any idea how long the war will last. And in 1939, they also don't have any idea what the Nazis mean. You know, they know something about what's been going on in Germany, but ghettos haven't been invented yet. Neither have death camps. You know, there's they're weighing factors in the absence of really almost any information. They're doing so in the midst of, as you're saying, these dueling invasions going on. And frequently, you know, the war starts September 1st, 1939. It's also a time of year that a lot of people aren't even home. They're coming back from summer colonies. They're on their way to school, to university. Many men are mobilized and they're away from their family. So many families aren't even making these decisions in a unified manner. They're already on the move. So it's such a complicated period. And in their memoirs and their testimonies, people talk about these decisions. But of course, we can't ever really know all of the factors they were weighing, what they were considering, how much is just gut instinct. Um, certainly, it was easier for younger people to pick up and leave, for people who had less property, less kind of holding them down, who had fewer family members or didn't feel attached in various ways. There was also, for some, a little bit of an attraction to the Soviet Union, to this grand experiment that was going on there, particularly for communists, for socialists, for those who leaned in that direction. And then on the other hand, there were for others, really a, a strong negative response to being in Soviet territory and the ways in which they, as wealthy people, as religious people, as anti-communists, might be in danger there. There's all sorts of personal and political and spiritual factors that people are trying to figure out. How does this play out in terms of the, the experiences of the Jews who are making their way into the Soviet Union? You mentioned before that at a certain point, the Jewish refugees are deported by the Soviets uh, into the Central Asian and, and Siberian territories. How are these refugees being treated in the USSR in this process you know, during the course of the war? Their experiences in Central Asia, Siberia, you know, and elsewhere. What, what does this look like for, for somebody who escapes from the Nazis, but then finds themselves basically in, in another territory where it's also very difficult as well? Yes. Yes, it really is. And before their deportation, they're in these territories that were Poland, have become Soviet territory, and there's this rapid Sovietization going on. Everything that took basically 20 years after the revolution is happening within a, the course of you know one year. So there's a lot going on economically, in terms of education, in terms of religion. And in many cases, they decide, I, I mean, there's a point at which in late 1939, the refugees are given a choice, and into 1940, whether to accept Soviet citizenship and stay there or to return to the Nazi-held territory, which they had left. And the majority of them sign up to return. So that tells us something about, even in that short period at the beginning, when the war hasn't come to the Soviet Union yet, so it's not yet war footing, just how difficult it is for people to make a living, to feed their families, find a place to live, that these refugees are deciding it was worth a try, but I'll just go home 
how bad is it really with the Nazis? And of course, they're writing letters across the border because the two states after the non-aggression pact are allied with one another. So they're hearing from their relatives who are under German occupation that it's not that terrible. And, and they think that they've made the wrong decision in many cases. As we later figure out, as they later figure out, in fact, it was sort of a test, even being offered the chance of returning to Poland. And in fact, they failed the test and were deported east instead of being taken west back to their homes. But that gives us a sense of just how unsettled they are during that early period. Right. So what you're saying is that the Soviets offering Jewish refugees Soviet citizenship is a test of whether or not they really wanted to be there. And when they said, no, I don't want to be here, I want to go back to my home, even though it's occupied by the Nazis, in some ways, the retribution for that choice was geographically opposite, right, to exile you know, them into these territories in Central Asia and beyond. Yes. I mean, we can't really understand how Stalin made decisions. Certainly what we can understand is that the Germans were never going to take back those Polish Jews. They had, from their perspective, far too many Polish Jews to deal with. So repatriation at that stage was never an option. It was always just an imaginary. But the refugees themselves had no way of knowing that. So they were, again, weighing their options, once again, facing a decision that seemed very important, although in fact was out of their hands. Part of what I think is really interesting about this entire situation is that I think it speaks to the broader paradoxes of the Nazi era and the period of World War II in general, which is to say, I mean, and this is something that I have encountered in my own research, thinking about the, the history of looted archives under the Nazis, where there's a paradoxical effect of you know, what is taking place. When I look at the archives, there's ways in which the materials that the Nazis had looted actually are what ends up surviving the war and is able to be reclaimed through restitution processes following the war. Right, And here you're also looking at ways in which things which look like one thing are actually the opposite. You know, In this situation where you're talking about deportation to Soviet interior, which obviously was very bad at the time, actually ends up helping to save the lives of tens of thousands of Jews who are now kind of moved out of the way of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union when that begins uh, in earnest. Yeah, that is the central paradox of this whole story, which on the whole, the refugees themselves don't figure out for several years later. But as readers, we can't help seeing it. But for example, there's testimonies and other sorts of evidence that once these refugees are deported and they're in these special settlements where the labor is terrible, the conditions are horrible, the weather is unimaginable, they're suffering greatly, they begin to request and to receive help. And they're receiving packages, not only from some Polish Jews who were not deported, who are still in that newly acquired Soviet territory, but also from their relatives under German occupation, Jews in the ghetto are sending packages to Stalin's camps because they think, oi, Nebuch, my poor relatives, they're really suffering there. Because at that point, it seems like they've made the wrong choice. And yet, as you say, in fact, they're the ones who were saved. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what is really important about this, I mean, obviously, you know, in many ways, 
is, I think, really interesting and really important to highlight this particular set of histories about how people survive the Holocaust. But I think it also raises really big questions about the way in which history works, the way in which societies work as a whole. And and two of them um, that I think are really striking is questions of agency, questions of personal choice, and also questions of contingency, you know, the way in which things could have gone in a different way. And I think that part of what is really fascinating about this is that I think that we often tend to think about the Holocaust in terms of a lack of agency on the part of many Jews. You know, obviously, people are being rounded up you know, deported, uh, murdered, uh, so on and so forth. And so the question is, how can anybody have agency in that kind of situation? And part of what you are really emphasizing here, especially the way in which uh, Jews are fleeing eastward at the very beginning of the war, is uh, ways in which there is a certain element of agency and personal choice that, you know, a relatively small number in terms of the total Polish Jewish population, but still a significant number of people are able to take action. Uh, in order to flee from the Nazis, you know, in an era that is generally uh, characterized by a lack of agency. And then the other half of that is the way in which nobody knew what was going to happen. We really see how people are making these kind of choices in this environment where everything is just so uncertain. And what seems like a bad choice at one point in time, or what seems like a good choice at one point in time, actually turns out very differently uh, in the end. Yes, it's so striking. It's impossible not to think about agency when looking at this kind of history. And in fact, honestly, any time that I open a Holocaust memoir or listen to a Holocaust testimony, almost no matter what or where, there's always these choices being made and some of them hugely elaborate. You know, people are paying large amounts of money to try and get a visa for Ecuador because they think that way they can save their families. Now, we know mostly that those don't work out, but they didn't know that. And they're, they have all sorts of plans. I, you know, some people were just killed before they could even make plans. But the people who survive for any amount of time are always thinking and deciding how to save the most members of their family. Is it better to stay together? Is it better to be apart with that lack of information? And it's, I think, tremendously important to be aware of that agency and to be respectful of it. And so this story, as you say, gives us um, a lot of evidence and ability to do so because there are all of these junctures of choice, moments where these decisions are made, which sometimes seem like the wrong decision, but turn out to be the quote unquote right decision, at least allow a large percentage of Polish Jews, well, relatively, to survive. And that contingency, of course, is what they live with afterward. That, that they've spent the rest of their lives thinking about, what if I hadn't? Maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe I should have just died with them because I left them alone when they might have needed me, when maybe I could have made a difference, or at least I could have been there, because it's just on that razor's edge of choice. Part of what you're describing here is that the Jews who survived the Holocaust by fleeing into the Soviet Union are going to deal with a lot of the same kinds of issues that you know, all the survivors, broadly speaking, are going to engage with. And so what is it about these survivors that makes them significant as we try to understand the sort of the post-war time period, uh, as, as we try to understand the process of people rebuilding their lives? And uh, you mentioned, for instance, that, th that many of them made their way back to Poland 
following the conclusion of the war, you know, and of course, as we know, many of the Jews, you know, the vast majority of the Jews who had survived and, you know, had made their way through the concentration camps and so on in the death marches and were now at the end of the war in Central Europe and in Poland, as opposed to in the Soviet Union, they didn't want to go back to Poland, right? So this is kind of a very different trajectory in a certain way of what is happening here. You know, non-Jewish Poles are not very happy when the Jews show back up again, you know, in uh, 1945, 1946. So there's this entire kind of dynamic of, of the post-war era. You know, how do these survivors fit into that? Yeah, they are both, in certain ways, they are survivors. They've made it through a terrible period and they blend right in to the survivor community. Most of the survivors of the Holocaust got back earlier. That is those who did go back to Poland or who even those who went to DP camps because they were liberated earlier and they were able to just get themselves back home or back to wherever they wanted to go. Whereas the repatriates on the whole, there are some exceptions, come you know, essentially a year later, they come in the summer of 46 instead of in 44 or 45. So in that sense, they're a little different. But in many ways, they're also dealing with the same trauma. They come back and they discover that everything is gone. Their families, their homes, their communities, their entire civilization has been destroyed. They've also faced hunger, faced disease, They've lost members of their family, often to starvation, sometimes to on-the-job accidents, some to fighting in the Red Army. They fit the profile of survivors in many, many ways. And in fact, they sort of blend in. Uh, when we talk about DPs, they're part of that group. They marry the survivors of the Holocaust. They have children together because they all want to rebuild families. They all want to find a new life. Among the most prominent of them, to return to your point about what it means to go back to post-war Poland, is that on the whole, anti-Semitism has not been a major part of their war experience. They've faced grave difficulties. Certainly, they've, on an individual basis, they have faced some anti-Semitism, but they were not treated as Jews primarily in the Soviet Union. They were treated as refugees, as evacuees, sometimes as Polish citizens. But then they get back to Poland after the war. And as you say, the country has been radicalized in terms of anti-Semitism. Not only is everything gone, but those people who are left, the Jews are cowering in fear in many ways. Some of them are trying to rebuild culture and life in certain areas. And many of their Polish neighbors and compatriots and have, again, the war experience has brought out or increased. Anti-Semitism is very much on the surface and violent and frightening after the war. And so they're also facing that in a way that differentiates them from the other survivors who have, of course, grown very used to being treated always and primarily as Jews. You've talked about the way in which people who survived the Holocaust had radically different experiences you know, under the Soviets versus under the Nazis. Like, What are some of the ways in which this particular group of survivors, those who survived via the Soviet Union, matter in terms of our understanding of what it means to be a Holocaust survivor. Some of these people, these Polish Jews who survived in the Soviet Union, think of themselves as Holocaust survivors, call themselves Holocaust survivors. Some do not. Some call themselves refugees, 
flight survivors, you know, they have some other way of understanding their experience. So that's one thing is I'm not going to make a decision about what they are if they themselves have different opinions about this. Another thing I would say is that I think the more research that's being done about the Holocaust and the way that it's expanded in recent decades away from just kind of perpetrator accounts, German documents toward local histories, regional histories, is we're just realizing that the Holocaust, the Holocaust in sort of quotation marks, is so much bigger and more diverse than we ever realized. That what it means to be a survivor from, you know, one part of Croatia is different from a different part of the former Yugoslavia and is different from Polish survivors and Belgian survivors. You know, it's it's already such a big tent. And then there's this group, which potentially expands it further, or at least asks us to think about what the borders are, who counts as a survivor. What I think is important to keep in mind about this group is that I mean, we could just call them refugees. And there were many refugees from the Holocaust who left in all different years and went in all different directions. What makes this group distinct from, say, those who were able to leave Europe is that they were still in the war zone. And the Holocaust could have caught up with them and, in fact, did catch up with some of them. Some of them who were not deported as far, who ended up only in eastern Ukraine or Eastern Belarus, instead of going all the way to the Urals or to the Arctic, the Germans got to those areas. And sometimes these people were killed there. Sometimes they fled again to get further into the Soviet interior. So the war was much closer to them. I mean, literally, they were living through the war and all of the conditions of war in the Soviet Union, but also that they were not really out of danger in the same way that some other refugees were. And some of them fled as many as three times. They kept <laughs> resettling, and then the Germans would move further into the Soviet Union because, of course, they really made it through a lot of Soviet territory. So I, I, for all of those reasons, I think they challenge us to think about what it means to be a survivor. And they have certain ways in which they simply did not have the same experience and certain ways in which they had overlapping experiences. Another part worth mentioning is that they fled at different moments. So some of them were actually under German occupation for months, weeks, sometimes quite a while and had experiences under German occupation before they chose to go to the Soviet side. There are granting agencies that have to actually come to some calculation about who is a Holocaust survivor for months, three months under German occupation, whatever it is, as academics, scholars, we don't have to come to those same kind of calculations. But I do think it's worthwhile to think about these questions and what we mean. Why is that significant in terms of our ability to understand the Holocaust in new ways, you know, that we're able to look at groups that perhaps don't fall under the standard definition of a survivor, you know, based off of kind of more popular accounts and so on and so forth? You know, how does this change the way that we understand the Holocaust on a broader level? In some ways, I think it's interesting to look at the very vibrant um, field of genocide studies right now, which comes out of the study of the Holocaust. Of course, the very word genocide, as we know, comes out of the study of the Holocaust. And in many ways, the Holocaust was used as a paradigmatic example. But now there's a lot of thinking and writing on a legal level 
and on a historical level about what constitutes genocide. What happened to these people that is leaving their homes and losing everything, having their home territories, all the people like them murdered there? I mean, they are survivors of genocide, clearly, by all of the definitions that we use to understand what genocide is. But we don't have to all agree, we don't have to regularize what the Holocaust is, but we certainly need to think about what constitutes the Holocaust. And there's no question that these people's lives were forever drastically changed by the Holocaust. So whether or not we consider them Holocaust survivors, certainly they're Holocaust refugees, certainly they're, they lost literally everything because of the Holocaust, their own families, you know, children, many left behind parts of their own nuclear families as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that the part of what is important to keep in mind here is that I think that some people might, you know, listen to a conversation like this and say, you know, well, what difference does it make how you define a survivor, right? That seems kind of pedantic, or, you know, perhaps this is the kind of thing that scholars do all the time. We argue over what does a word mean? You know, how do we define it, et cetera? And so part of the question is, why does that matter to think broadly about a term beyond the way in which it is, you know, commonly understood? And I think that why this is significant and this is just something that I was thinking about as I was reading your book, is that the challenge is to, to expand the boundaries of the Holocaust in terms of expanding of the way in which we think about it. I often think about, you know, what, what are the ways in which we can expand the boundaries of the discussion of the Holocaust beyond 1945 to include, um, you know, the process of reconstruction and rebuilding, you know, in this broader sort of history of the Holocaust. The Holocaust doesn't just end, you know, with the conclusion of the Second World War, it is a historical process that continues beyond that as well. And the same thing is something happening here that you're talking about geography, the ways in which we can look beyond the territory under direct Nazi control, I think is an area that other people have been you know, looking at the Holocaust in North Africa. And so there's a lot to be said here about how looking at this group of refugees, this group of survivors who were not under direct Nazi control really helps us to understand the Holocaust in the broadest fashion beyond the kind of more standard, you know, narratives that we've received over the course of many years. And part of that process is just the passage of time. As we get further from a historical event, we're able to view it in different ways. We're able to sort of take a wide angle and, and just see what did it mean for the world? Because for North Africa, in so many ways, the Holocaust has this huge sweeping effect. And both looking at new regions and what the Holocaust was like there, but also thinking in some ways beyond just regions to what the Holocaust has meant more broadly. And, th and that the survivor means something in popular culture. They've taken on a mantle of kind of a sense of having experienced the worst. Uh, but of course, survivors themselves, however we define them, it's a diverse group. What they survived is very different. What they actually saw is quite different depending on who they were, where they were. And so in many ways, this taking it even broader helps us to notice the diversity within um, even those areas that are sort of uncontestedly part of the Holocaust. Yeah. Over the course of the, the past couple of generations since the Holocaust, survivors have taken a very public role in terms of the telling of the story of the Holocaust, whether we're looking at 
you know, Holocaust survivors speaking to school children or the documentation of survivor testimonies and so on and so forth, we are approaching a time in which the place of survivors and the way in which we talk about the Holocaust is changing um, just because people are passing away just, you know, with the normal, you know, passage of time. As we are approaching, you know, an, an eventual reality when the Holocaust is no longer within living memory, how does this question of thinking about survivors and, and the very diverse experience of survivors change, you know, within that developing very natural situation of history that every historical event eventually passes from living memory into, into you know, the pages of history alone. Yes, absolutely. And we've certainly seen that within the past couple of decades that child survivors have become much more prominent in telling their stories. And part of it is that they grew up, but part of it is that they're who's left. And they tell different stories. What it meant to be a child during the war is quite different. What they could see, their horizon was so much different. And we've also, as a society, expanded, again, that the definitions, our own definitions of survival to include, for example, the kinder transport children who did experience Nazi Germany, but before the war started. So that's a, a different sort of survival than some of the earlier definitions and the, the ways that we previously might have been raised to think about what survival is. So I, th I think this is already happening. And certainly, the end of the era of the witness is going to change the way that we view the Holocaust from so many different angles. We still have, fortunately, a lot of documentation, some of which is still being discovered and uncovered. Uh, quite remarkably, there are still diaries out there that we haven't found. There are still photographs that keep coming up. So it doesn't mean that we're not going to find out more. We've talked a lot so far about the way in which this story fits into the history of the Holocaust very specifically. But I also think that, that there's an important angle here of thinking about why this history matters for our understanding of Russian and Soviet history as well. One of the things that, that you touched upon in the book for instance, was the way in which the Soviet Union, when it was established in the early 20th century, continued the Tsarist policy of the exile of criminals and, and other kinds of political prisoners to Siberia, you know, which was, of course, a much hated, despised like phenomenon from the Tsarist regime. There are really interesting ways in which we can talk here about the way that the experiences of Jews who are fleeing from Nazi Germany into the Soviet Union can help us to understand the development of Russian history that is taking place around them. I think this is really important, both for just understanding, but also for integration. There's a great degree to which, partly because of the Iron Curtain, partly because of Soviet communism, that Soviet history has been sort of blocked off as a separate field. There was the Soviet Union, and then there was Europe. Whereas what this story shows us is that th those are just borders, like any other borders. They can be crossed. And these people were on both sides, and they were bringing Polish culture and Jewish culture with them into the Soviet territory. And they were taking aspects of Soviet ideology and ideas and life back with them to the West when they left. So I think in so many ways, it's significant to expand the boundaries of the Holocaust and of Soviet history by integrating these stories 
And one example of that is to think about exile and deportation as this through line in Russian czarist, Soviet, and unfortunately, post-Soviet FSU history, as well, the ways in which the geography of the land lends itself to solving problems via forced exile, which doesn't happen in other countries because nobody else has that kind of land where they can just put aside thousands and thousands of people. But what does that mean for the land, for the government, for the people, of course, who are exiled? How does that affect the society at large? These Polish citizens, Jewish and non-Jewish, who come out are some of our earliest, and in many cases, some of our only witnesses to the gulag. Because most Soviet citizens who were themselves put there, if they survived, they weren't able to write about it afterward. Or if they did, they wrote it for the desk drawer. It didn't get out on the whole, with some exceptions. And so these Polish citizens who got out bring us some really valuable and sort of fascinating information about the culture of the gulag, the vocabulary, the lifestyle, what it meant to be in exile in all different types of exile. I mean, I think part of what's happening here as well is thinking about the Russian, you know, and particularly Soviet approach to trying to socially engineer the Jewish population. I'm thinking about, you know, efforts to try to move Jews to Central Asia, you know, whether we're talking about Birobijan or or anything else. And so, like, how does this fit in there, right? It's not just a story of the Holocaust. It's part of a broader story of the Russian state, the Soviet state, trying to move Jews you know, from one place to another. There is an inexplicable optimism, if you want to put it that way, of the Soviet state that people are malleable, that you can move entire populations and then re-educate them, somehow make them anew into the kind of Soviet people that you want them to be. In the case of these Jewish refugees, they're being moved as Polish citizens and as refugees who refuse to accept Soviet citizenship, or sometimes because of their politics, they're not being moved, though, primarily as Jews. So it's as sort of suspect Poles in many ways that they're being treated. And there had been deportations of ethnic Poles during this period, but also earlier because there were some ethnic Poles who ended up in Soviet territory. So one can see a continuity there, although, of course, the Jewish parts of the Polish population are different. They react differently. They they come in with different skill sets, different approaches to communism. And of course, they remember this period very differently also. To get back to our sort of central paradox that we were speaking about, for a Jewish Pole, this deportation as salvation is very different from a Catholic Pole who sees destruction, utter destruction, who sees that the Soviets are trying to destroy everything which Poles stand for and does not derive any sense of appreciation from having been deported and forced to be slaves and in many cases killed in the course of the war. Right. So you're talking there about in retrospect. Yes. I mean, I think that there's also an interesting question here about how is it that the history of the Jews who fled eastward during the Holocaust and then their experiences in the Soviet Union, does it illuminate in some ways the later history of Jews in the Soviet Union, what is taking place in Eastern Europe, broadly speaking, in the decades that followed 
the Holocaust? You know, in what ways you know, can we look at you know, either certain kinds of continuity or perhaps not of thinking about how what took place in the 1940s affects what happens in the 60s, 70s, you know, and beyond? This is somewhat speculative. I mean, what we can say for sure, just based on all sorts of um, testimonial evidence, is that Soviet Jews and these Polish Jewish exiles interacted. They interacted in casual ways in the workplace, and they interacted in more voluntary and um, intimate ways. They had relationships of various sorts. They cooperated for cultural and religious reasons. All sorts of testimonies about Soviet and Polish Jews getting together to have underground religious education, to have uh, religious services in exile in the Soviet Union, to talk about Zionism. So from the perspective of the Polish Jews, they left behind a legacy of Jewish culture. And they see themselves in many cases as sort of having gifted it to their Soviet Jewish co-religionists. From the Soviet side, we have much less in terms of documentation because they didn't write memoirs about the war period mostly, or not until much, much later. And even when they do talk about it, they don't talk about, on the whole, with a few exceptions, interactions with Polish Jews. So does that mean they were less significant to them? Does that mean maybe the Polish Jews didn't really make any major impression? That's possible. There has been some speculation that some of the kind of uh, cultural awakening that happened later in those later decades that you're referring to might have something to do with this legacy of these interactions, these cultural sharing that went on during the war. But there's no real evidence. And we do know that there were plenty of Soviet Jews who themselves were holding on to aspects of Jewish culture that were significant to them, were passing those on. From their perspective, they didn't necessarily really need the Polish Jews to bring them. They were against very difficult circumstances, holding on to that on their own. I have run into some responses to my work and to some of these questions that betray a certain amount of insult. We, we didn't need them. We could have done this on our own. And in fact, we did. How is it that the experience of this group of Polish Jews you know, who survived via the Soviet Union plays into the broader history of Eastern Europe in the second half of the 20th century, kind of broadly speaking? That's a very big question. A couple thoughts. One is, this is one example, I, I, to some degree, where they are like other survivors. There is a post-war survivor community, and they're not distinct in, for example, their strong commitment to Holocaust commemoration. Even though they weren't there, they want to build monuments. They want to write about what was lost. They're very committed to commemoration, commemorating their families, their communities, to going back to those places and finding out what happened, to collecting information. Some of the major historians in of the Holocaust in Poland after the war are survivors from the Soviet Union who are filling in that history of what they missed, of what happened, of, of what was destroyed. That's sort of a narrow answer, but more broadly in terms of kind of how they changed that community and even those countries, hard to say. There, there are some sensitive issues here because 
some of the accusations of anti-Semitism, which resurface in the 1950s and especially in the 1960s in Poland, blame Jews for bringing back communism with them. That is, you escaped into the Soviet Union, you were trained to become communists, and then you came back and infected our country, and you brought Stalin here, and look what happened to us all. So there are Jews in the post-war communist government who enthusiastically take part in all different aspects. Of course, there are many non-Jews also. So some of these issues are rather fraught. The other thing I would say to your point about kind of the prominence of this group numerically, and yet the fact that we don't know that much about their stories takes us beyond the Eastern Bloc countries and into the West also, because isn't it remarkable to think about that so many of us who were raised hearing about the Holocaust, who heard all these stories, who had survivors in our midst, many of those survivors, in fact, survived in the Soviet Union, and yet we don't know those stories. We mostly weren't told those stories. I am really interested in this question of, you know, why is it that people are not as aware of this particular history? You know, as you said, you know, many of the people who we encounter as survivors, they may not talk about it, the, this particular aspect of it, but they did survive via the Soviet Union. So why do you think that it is that people haven't paid as much attention to this aspect of the history, you know, up until now? And what is it that brings it to the fore? you know, at this particular moment in the past couple of years, as you and other scholars as well have been kind of thinking about this issue? Some other scholars have talked about different types of silencing by choice. That is, I'm not going to talk about my story because this other story is so much more important because the Holocaust is what happened. As well as for politics, that is, the Cold War made it not make a lot of sense to be writing about and talking about how fantastic it was to be able to survive the war. Not that it was fantastic, but life in the Soviet Union wasn't going to help people get into America, Australia, other countries that they were hoping to come to as refugees. But in addition to that, this is the part that it took me a long time to come around to. I think that part of the reason that people didn't talk about their own survival experiences and they foregrounded the Holocaust was that the Holocaust was their story. That is, it wasn't so much always that they were silencing their story. The loss of their siblings, of their parents in the Holocaust was the story of the war. Theirs was there too, but it was tangential to the camps and the ghettos. That was part of their story. They understood that as a story that they survived in order to tell. So you're saying that they saw the events of quote unquote, the Holocaust proper as kind of being the bigger story as opposed to the story of their individual survival. The bigger story and also their bigger story that could have been almost was their story. Because they survived, it was their story to tell. It wasn't some separate sphere. I think one other aspect of this, which you touched upon just a moment ago, is the Cold War context, which some of these aspects of the way in which the story of the Holocaust is told continue even now, you know, a quarter century, you know, more since the, you know, since the conclusion of the Cold War, which is that in the United States in particular and in the West more generally, there's a tendency to downplay the Soviet role in the fighting of World War II, broadly speaking, you know, whether that's in kind of 
historical fiction and period pieces on TV and you know, movies and so on and so forth, or even just in the way that it's taught in schools, you know, people just don't talk as much about the, you know, the significant role of the Soviets in fighting the war, just because it's, it's downplayed. Part of the question here is like, to what extent is this part of the story of, as you're saying, like why people, perhaps on an individual level, they may not want it to highlight their time in the Soviet Union wouldn't necessarily have been a good look for them in, say, 1975 or 1980 in America, right? But also it's part of a broader kind of social discourse surrounding how Americans you know, and the West at large have talked about World War II and the Holocaust. Do you think that's part of it? And then this, the kind of follow-up to that is in what way can we help to, to rethink the Holocaust by specifically trying to pay attention to the role of the Soviets? in a way that has been downplayed, broadly speaking, in American culture? I think on an individual level, as you say, that has been a factor. And there are people who lied on their immigration documents in order to come to the United States, for example, and said, I was in this and this camp because they were afraid and not unreasonably that if they said that they were actually in the Soviet Union, they wouldn't be able to get in. And so, of course, they weren't going to talk about that. And some people have publicly come out and talked about that experience. And some people are still kind of keeping that a secret. But then there's the broader level, which has to do with the Cold War. And one of the kind of side aspects of the Cold War was just access to sources and information. So there were reasons that we weren't telling those stories that had to do with aggrandizing Western aspects of the war, but also just that we didn't know exactly what happened in the Soviet Union. And that, that is just an absolutely burgeoning field right now. There's so much research going on about the Holocaust and the war in the Soviet Union by people who live in those places, who speak those languages, who can gain access to local archives that I can't even find on the map and are doing just tremendous work right now in all aspects of Soviet um, evacuation, of the war, of the Holocaust. And I sincerely hope that we will read their work, we will translate their work so that it can be read more widely. And that will help us to understand the war more broadly and not to separate it out at the Soviet experience and the quote unquote Western experience. So what is it that we can draw from looking at the experiences of these survivors in terms of thinking about genocide on a very broad scale as we try to wrap our heads around you know, what has happened historically and what continues to take place, you know, in, in a world where the experience of refugees is ongoing, whether we're talking about refugees from genocide or refugees from, you know, climate crises of one kind or another, in numerical terms, there are more refugees today than there ever have been, you know, even, you know, at these crisis points in the past, you know, what do we take away from, from this history as we try to understand both in terms of the intellectual and the academic study of genocide and also the, the ongoing issues that we are dealing with. One thing that this group really brings to mind is not only is the refugee experience sort of broadly and globally ongoing, but the individual refugee experience itself continuous. It, these people are refugees literally for many years. But in many ways, they remain refugees for the rest of their lives. They're never quite home again. They're always displaced. They're always migrants. They're always refugees. And I think it's important. 
I mean, of course, to do what we can for all of the situations of people in need of new homes around the world, but also to be aware that the former refugees among us and around us still carry those experiences with them. To go back to your point of the war itself not ending on a particular day in 1944, 1945, whenever some area got liberated or armies came through, the refugee experience and the experience of fleeing from war doesn't really end. I mean, I'm, I don't feel sort of capable of drawing conclusions or lessons, but I, I do think a lot about these discussions that we began with about flight. What is the point when you leave? When is it not safe? Or what does it mean to leave your home? And just how hard it is to make those decisions and what that someone who comes, who becomes a refugee has already been through so much trauma, even to make that decision to leave behind their homes, their families, their possessions, even if they haven't yet come under attack and under war, just to be aware of the kind of backstory in any refugee story. When you think about the decisions that people are making to move from one place to another, the question of agency, and to go back to something that we touched upon earlier, that refugees that are coming, say, for instance, to the United States, you know, to the southern border, right, they are fleeing something really tremendously horrible. And the question is, you know, how do we understand them? You know, how do we deal with the questions of to what extent people are accepted in the United States and what are their experiences here? You know, I think that when you look at what took place in the Soviet Union, you know, 1939, 40, you know, et cetera, there are big questions to think about how the United States or really any other country where refugees are trying to make their way there, uh, European countries, you know, et cetera, what is the role that they play in this ongoing story of people who are fleeing and really making tremendous sacrifices to try to come to a place where they can survive? some kind of atrocity which they're experiencing. Yes, the refugee experience across different time periods and different locations, certainly that agency on the one hand, but also the powerlessness on the other uh, is very common. It's certainly the case for this group that in addition to that kind of agency, there's a tremendous amount of luck. Why did the Soviet Union even let them in at all? It wasn't exactly a plan. They just ended up there. The, the borders weren't quite closed yet. And then all these other contingencies happened whereby they survived the war. So in this case, we're not talking about a sort of effort to save people or to provide them homes. So I guess we could say how much more so could be done in those situations where people are proactively reaching out and trying to help. But in this case, and probably in many others, it's just circumstance, a series of unexpected circumstances that lead to these people's survival of the war. What do you think is the biggest takeaway here? And you know, we've talked about this set of issues in terms of the Holocaust in particular. We've talked about it in terms of Eastern Europe. We've talked about it in terms of you know, the broader ongoing issues of, of genocide and, and refugee populations. When you think about this research, when you think about this book, and the big issues that it raises, like, what do you think is like one of the biggest takeaways that we can use, you know, and that we can think about in terms of its cultural and intellectual significance of, of why 
it matters to look at this group and to think about their experiences and what it teaches us? So on the most basic level, I think it's worth knowing this story, knowing about these people and seeing their experience of the war as whether it's adjacent or alternative to the Holocaust or part of the Holocaust, as part of certainly the war experience of Polish Jewry. That's the most basic level. I also think that it leads us to ask some of these questions, which we've been talking about today, about what the Holocaust is, about what a survivor is, about where the Holocaust takes place, that in many ways, this particular group kind of gives us a lens with which to, a sort of a comparative with which to view that which we think we know about the Holocaust, where it takes place, who is implicated in different aspects of it. And then it leads us into Soviet history, which we've spoken about, into some of the issues of memory, which we didn't so much get into today, but about the post-war Poland and certainly post-communist Poland has all sorts of politics around memory, which some of which is, of course, very politically charged and dangerous right now. But again, I think looking at this story is a way potentially to bridge some of those gaps and to talk about both what is different and distinct about the Jewish experience of the war, but also in what ways Poles and Jews did suffer together and did go through similar experiences in in certain ways, also in terms of Soviet exile. So I, I do think that this story is important for all different kinds of historiographies and memory regimes and for looking back at the war and the Holocaust. Well, thank you so much. You know, this I think has been just a really fascinating conversation and a lot of, you know, a lot of fun to to really dive into this research topic and, and the ways in which it matters. So, you know, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. And thanks to you for listening to this conversation with Eliana Adler. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.